Welcome to the Gagaris Memo Podcast. This is Chris. And this is Kate. And we come to you today from a sunny but very cold Berlin to bring you a little bit of a Lynx show. Just to remind you, for previous episodes, go to gagarismammal.com slash podcast. And to support the show, if you like what you're about to hear, go to the same URL slash support. How have you been, Kate? Very well. Very busy, actually. Um, since I last have been talking with our listeners, I've increased my hours in one of my jobs, working for a venture capital advisory company who work in industrial IoT. So um, that's been very much consuming my time and um, I have a slew of articles um, to be finished for DZone where I have interviewed people, I've transcribed the um, interviews and I'm just due to pop it all together and send it off into the, um, I don't know, into the interwebs. I think you mean you're moving it from one interweb to another, really. Well, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> interweb sounded a bit more exciting. That's why I said it, I guess. I interweb actually sounds kind of outdated. It sounds like a 90s term. I don't actually to... know. I, I don't know why that it popped in my head. I think I thought of it because I was reading that article on open source, sort of old school stuff. Well, on that note, you gave us a very unsubtle uh, bridge there. <laughs> We're going to start the show with a birthday, with a belated birthday wish. 20 years to open source. Um, I'm referring directly to an article here on opensource.com, but it was reported on other outlets. Uh, on yeah, February the 3rd of 20 years ago, so 1998, uh, the term open source was coined uh, and... This involved a few people. You can read the article to find out more. Um, and Kate actually said when we were discussing the links for the show, I thought it was older. And open source is more of a – it was sort of a better termed term for free software to to remove confusion over the difference between free and open source. Um, it's also an interesting article because it sort of highlights the importance of marketing a new term. Anyone can make up a new term, but you have to get people to use it. And they had people like Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Publishers sort of helping them push that term out into the community. So, yeah, it's sort of interesting potted history. Mm. Yeah, it was it was an interesting article. And um, I always quite enjoy hearing how things come about with um, new terminology or even, of course, new technology. And um, we do have to thank um, Christine Peterson for that. And moving on to our first link after that little birthday greeting, this is an article from ZDNet, ZDNet, I don't know how you want to pronounce it, called Tech and the Future of Transportation. And I suppose this is, this is interesting in um, a couple of ways. Firstly, because often the future is always less interesting than it was promised to be, and we're basically still going around in iteratively improved transport that fundamentally hasn't changed in quite a while. And this is an article that basically sort of sums up where we're up, where we're at to mm. with uh, the forthcoming vehicles. Like a lot of people already thought we'd be having automated cars. Why mm. are they not here yet? Um, also, it goes into like the Hyperloop option, uh, drones, and a few other things. And actually, we, we haven't put it on a, as, a, as a link in the show, but I would also highly recommend you watch the uh, launch video of the rocket that uh, SpaceX... SpaceX. No, no not... Is it SpaceX? Yeah, SpaceX just yeah. launched. Uh, and it's also amazing because it's reusable, which has always been one of the big issues with space travel. Um, so, yeah, anything to say here, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I it's an area of technology I've followed fairly closely for a number of years, and um, I thought the article was quite good. I think um, the Gartner um, analysis was pretty apt. Mm. And it's worth re reminding people that, you know, there's a lot – there's probably as many people at the moment working towards, if we look at autonomous vehicles, lev um, look at, working towards level three as they are level five. Mm. Um, and you've got a real delineation between the OEMs who decide to, um, I guess, tender out all the individual component services and those who um, are trying to DIY the whole lot themselves and, you know, maintain that proprietary knowledge. And this is what slows down some of the innovation. Um, there is a lot of well-being and kind of good intentions for collaboration within the sectors. And this is where it becomes very important when you factor in things like smart cities. 
And but you know this stuff takes a long time. It's a lot of money and it's a lot of time. And um, I think some of the most interesting innovations will come fairly fast. For example, we already have facets of V2V communication where vehicles can communicate with each other. Mm. I think one of the biggest test areas has been emergency vehicles. And it's even stuff which sounds fairly like, really? But there's a, there's current reality that if you're driving in a car with the windows up and you have music on, you can't hear it. For example, an ambulance. Mm. So they have to have something that cuts through the music. Or my grandfather um, who was deaf and didn't hear oh, yeah. it. But you could tune yeah. into someone's hearing aid or something and cut right through. Yeah. So there's there's those sorts of stuff that, that's happening. And um, it, it's worth also considering that, you know, some of this stuff will only be most effective in the in the first probably 20 years of implementation, maybe 30 years even, where you've got a city infrastructure, like a physical infrastructure that's conducive to connected vehicles mm. and drones. Like when we talk about drones, the, the most – like the technology is kind of already there. Um, it's all working reasonably well. But the pain point is very much about the last mile problem, mm. which they refer to, you know – where do you drop off the parcels? Because I think we all have this utopian image that this drone is going to rock up to our apartment and somehow alert us that there's a parcel out the mm. front and we go downstairs and pick it up or something like that. What and do you do if you're not ha- there? <laughs> it's not quite going to happen like that. Yeah. We know that, that, you know, we know in Berlin alone there is, uh, you know, I can think of at least five or six startups competing just in this vehicle, to, um, sorry, parcel delivery space. Yeah. But the main the main challenges are to do with firstly the laws at present make it very difficult to operate a drone without it being in sight. Mm. Um, so there actually has to be someone physically on the ground walking around, really able to see the drone. The drone, yeah. There are some exemptions to this, and the laws in the UK are a little bit more flexible. Yeah, than that the was ones interesting. The they were US. talking about how they've been testing it in the UK. Yeah, because they're a little bit more flexible there. But, you know, um, a lot of people are kind of picturing a scenario where there'll be central drop-off points Mm. where the drones go, um, with the parcels, whether it's a, you know, some kind of field or it's a warehouse or what have you. Um, you know, an outdoor environment, I guess you'd say. Mm. And then there's some type of capacity for it to be transported to your home or your office or what have Mm. you. And, and that's where you're going to need that connectivity between drones, (laughs) between, um, distribution centers, between shipping and logistics Mm. and, um, the transport that, that, you know, takes it to the last mile. Actually, no, this this article is actually full of lots of quite interesting things. And there's a, a figure, yeah, a figure one is. here from a Deloitte survey, which I find yeah. quite fascinating. So the question was, percentage of consumers who think fully self-driving vehicles would not be safe, 2018 versus 2017. And firstly, mm. it's quite remarkable where in most cases between 2017 and 2018, it's typically at least a 20 to 30% drop or yeah, drop in the number of people who think it will be unsafe. So more mm. people think it will mm. be safe. But I also find it quite interesting that uh, some of the higher numbers are not the countries you would think. Like That's actually right. Japan and Korea are some of the ones who worry the most. And these are countries that in our thoughts anyway are already fairly automated and you yeah, think would be used to uh, having the thought of having an automated car. And then a mm. country like Germany – where they're so opposed to automation in other ways is actually yeah. fairly positive. It's quite strange. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting um, juxtaposition. And I think um, that, that physical landscape I referred to by using the example of the drones is going to be even more pervasive when we actually look at the um, the connected vehicles, mm. whether they're at level three or five, you know, eventually five, um, because you need a certain landscape. I mean, most of them, we know most of the testing has been in an environment of test beds where it's, you know, long strips of road with some, you know, in a, in a built up city areas. Mm. Um, there's already been challenges with terrain when it comes to things like sand or, you know, dirt roads or snow or things like that. Um, we know that in, in parts of Europe, for example, there's extremely, um, windy cobblestoned 
roads and I imagine it would be the same or in regard to unwieldy terrain when you look at parts of India and Asia mm. where it would be it could be quite difficult for these um these vehicles to navigate and they may be they may very well be roads that in general people focus on having a you know, a, a, mo- a moped or something, mm-hmm. or a, you know, by foot as an alternative. Well, currently, you, I highly recommend you have a read of this article. Definitely on ZD <laughs> ZDNet Net by Charles McClellan. Uh, but you yeah. gave us a nice segue into the next article. You talked about uh, smaller roads, uh, going the last mile on foot, etc. Or mm. well, what's another vehicle people could use, Kate? And this leads very nicely to our next article. Off you go. <sighs> oh, you mean the um, the hovercraft? <laughs> The hovercraft? No, I meant the bike, Kate. Yeah. I know, the bicycle. Oh, I'm being a, a bit joke. Okay, sorry. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a joke. Of course it was a joke. Yeah. Um, this is Bring on the Bicopolips. Mm. And I'm um, talking about the humble two, um, two-wheeled bicycle, obviously. Um, One of the oldest forms of technology we still use. Yeah. It? And it actually refers train. to oh, that. Sure, right. Being, yeah. you know, that most cities were planned at a time when the only transport was the bicycle. Mm. And it's true, you know, we, we know that in Europe. I mean, maybe not big cities where you've got big roads like parts of America and Australia, but other places, not mm. so much. Um, and the question they're asking, and I'll read this out because it's, it's quite nice. Are cities doomed to be forever tainted by the original sin of their birth date? Mm. Will all cities built around cars feel mm. grim and soulless for generations to come? Mm. Or like the complex emergent organisms they are, can they evolve into a human-scaled places with real soul and a sense of place? Mm. And it talks about some of the challenges of city planning when it comes to areas where they, you either have, you know, your commuter cities or you have um, a, a lack of public transport or, you know, other, other forms of accessibility. Mm. Um, I actually found this interesting on several counts. Um, yeah, sure. The first one was, yes, because this has struck me recently, going back to Melbourne recently uh, or late last year, uh, but being in Berlin as well, Melbourne is obviously a, a modern city built in a particular at a particular time, although it's actually worked fairly well organised around trams, but I think that's more of just a luck or anything else. Um, and then a city like Berlin, and actually Berlin is smaller in terms of population, but mm. has a probably better public transport uh, and... Melbourne is very much built around the car, and as the as the, yeah. uh, the the suburbs expand, basically you have to drive. Uh, if you live beyond a certain mm. distance, there's mm. no choice but to drive because it's a lot mm. quicker to whack up cookie cutter housing than it is to build train lines. That's um, right. But this this uh, this article also goes into another aspect that you, we haven't got to yet. This aspect of the this recent wave or this recent infestation, some might say of the dockless bikes, um, mm. just for a quick bit of context. So there has been for some time uh, a lot coming from a company called Bixie, which is actually uh, from Canada originally, the docked bikes. And there's a few different schemes around the world. So basically to, to, to plan these networks, you have to figure out where to put the docks and people have to return bikes to a dock, which sort of limits the usefulness of them because mm. you have to uh, rely on putting in a dock in a place that people want to use it. Um, yeah. Whereas the dockless bikes that have appeared more recently are just free. Uh, uh, well, not free. I mean, free is in they don't have to be tied to any location. People can take them somewhere and then someone else will pick that one up and take it back somewhere else and on it goes and they're trackable okay. by GPS, etc. Um, is there some kind of lock related to an app? Yes, is that yes, how they exactly. They all have a back okay. wheel lock that yeah. is unlocked with an app. Um, okay. Most cases. Maybe some have cards or something, but the most cases right. it, it's locks. Um, and again, Berlin actually had one of these uh, in the past, uh, mm. sort of homegrown um, alternative that I've seen in a few cities around Europe. But then recently there's been this onslaught, <laughs> an invasion of these Chinese companies, uh, O-Bike, Mobike, uh, what's the other one? Boxy, Moxie? I can't quite remember. Um, Ofo, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, and the interesting thing is, so in Melbourne and Sydney, Sydney didn't really have the docked bike scheme before. So they actually, when I was there, they had them on uh, for, for free for the month of November because they wanted to get people to use them. So my friend and I 
used one and it was great. We rode it around and uh, Sydney's not great for public transport, so it was really good. Um, in Melbourne, though, who had a pre-existing docked bike scheme, people were just dumping them in the river and they were causing all sorts of problems, um, which, you know, some of that is something to do with people. It's not really Question. the bike's fault per se. Just let me, just one thing. And then recently they've actually emerged in Berlin as well. And I would say, and I've asked a few friends here, I have not seen a single person using them. Uh, they basically, I see some of them in exactly the same place for the past few weeks, uh, primarily because there's plenty of pre-existing bike schemes here. Yeah, and this article goes into a little bit of that as well. And I think he brought up an article a couple of months ago about these sort of uh, dockless bike wastelands that mm. have popped up as well. Um, but my question is actually how it was working when you were in Australia, because in Australia, by law, you have to have a bike helmet. Yeah. So and they if you're all a tourist, to, you're not going to BYO. They, so they all did, had helmets attached to them, much the same as with the dock okay. scheme. I know yeah. to listeners this might seem crazy, but this was a similar problem with the uh, docked bikes that yeah. uh, helmet wearing is mandatory in Australia. So they had to actually supply free helmets mm. <laughs> to, uh, yeah, to, to allow people to use them, which is kind yeah. of strange. Okay. Um, and there was a myriad of helmets in various shapes of disarray. Uh, it's it's worth city. noting too that like whilst you're a fairly experienced yeah. cyclist and oh, yeah. the person yeah. you are with is is very 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 experienced, yeah. Sydney is widely considered one of the most dangerous cycling cities in the world mm. because of the intolerance of cyclists. Also, just because the way the it's the it's city's a very designed. much European style city and the bike yeah. lanes just go random places and things like that. Well, they disappear, they so disappear. you're not you might be feel you're you're safely on a bike lane, yeah. then it just disappears on, and you're on a highway yeah. or something, or on a pavement or something with what people swearing you? at you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I would I would question that you know the usage because of that. And but conversely, I'd say when you look at the the lack of uses in Berlin, mm. I would say one of the reasons is. There is a, most people own bikes here. I think it's mm. one in seven have mm. bicycle. Mm. It's very high, yeah. and unfortunately, there's also a very high rate of theft here, mm. bike theft, um, where the bikes get sent to other countries like Poland and, mm. and and sold there. So it's a difficult one, and I could see if if you're someone who's had a bike stolen more than once. I don't know. Chris has had one stolen. Um, the you know the appeal of just using one of these bicycles periodically as a as an alternative oh, to definitely, constantly. Yeah. And also because I, I'm it, surprised I think you might see people go to that. Because I, I've actually of that been reason. thinking of it for that reason actually, and also for the yeah. reason of like if I want to take my bike on the train you have to mm. pay for it. Whereas yeah, often do. when I actually want to use a bike is like it's five minute walk from the nearest station to our house. It's not that far, but if it's late mm. and it's cold and I just want to get home and there's a bike yeah. outside the station and it takes totally. me one minute to get home instead, I don't have to worry about getting the bike on and off the train, etc. That's actually a perfect use case. And also Berlin is very flat. Sydney yeah. and Melbourne are quite hilly and these bikes very. are not great. But in a flat city like Berlin, they're actually perfect, mm. which does beg the question – I mean, my bigger question on all these schemes is these are huge Chinese companies with a lot mm. of government investment into them. But I, don't, I just don't know how they're making any money, especially based on their Western usage. I mean, maybe mm. in China they're used massively, but based on their Western usage, I don't see yeah. how these companies are making any money, but I, I guess they are. Yeah, I don't know if you have done any more digging into that. but No, yeah. um, I would assume they get a lot of early investment and um, – there may be some I, – I would be interested to know the longevity of some of these companies as well, um, yeah, whether there's been a few are. a few in the past that have gone on the wayside and mm. how they – how their business models differ perhaps. Yeah. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I haven't really – it's not something I've ever looked into. No, it's quite fascinating actually. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's, it's strange that they're making such a comeback as well. Like the bike is like the record player. It refuses – it's a technology that refuses to go away. <laughs> I think it's I – think it is also that issue that there are a lot of places that are inaccessible for public transport. Yeah. Yeah. And whilst, you know, we've been lucky to live now in a city that has very, very good public transport compared to most cities, mm. um, you know, while it is, it's not cheap, but it's good, uh, for a lot of places you don't have that option, mm -hmm. you know. All right, well, enough about the past, present and future of transport. Let's move on to our next section. Okay, now I want to talk about a topic that we kind of predicted last year would become a very pervasive topic this year, and it's the one about, I guess, the um, ethics of um, 
technology and particularly in this use case, social media. Um, and it, this is an article from the New, the New York Times from Nellie Bowles and um, it's titled Early Facebook and Google Employees Form Coalition to Fight What They Built. Um, and it's basically what it sounds like. It's a group of Silicon Valley technologists who um, kicked off with some of this technology in the early days. Um, they've created a Centre for Humane Technology um, which, along with a media watchdog group called Common Sense Media, mm. plans an anti-tech addiction lobbying effort and an ad campaign at 55,000 public schools in the US. Mm. So they've got $7 million in funding to do this and also, gosh, $50 million in donated media and airtime from partners including Comcast and DirecTV. Mm. And their aim there is to look at educating students, parents and teachers about the dangers of technology, including the depression that can come from the heavy use of social media. Mm. I mean, we've come back to this topic several times, and Kate and I are both Kate and I are both now members of a, a collective here in Berlin called the Good Technology Collective, which is probably less high profile because we don't have any. You know, America in a way gets priority, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, with some similar aims and goals um yeah and there's also the uh tech workers collective also in the u.s which is more aimed at the uh the kind of workers rights more than um Mm, mm. the users rights but this is a growing movement and i'm still sort of it's something i'm very interested in but i must admit i'm kind of rapidly trying to catch up with because there's so much happening at once and trying to uh, I guess it's trying to figure out what to do instead is often the problem I have. Of, of you know, I've worked in this industry for a long time, and I know and I can see that certain things I've worked on are being used in ways that I'm unhappy with. But what do I do instead? This is kind of a, a complexity I'm having, um, and it's the same thing here. Like if you build a data processing tool. It can be used in a myriad of ways and not every way you're going to be happy with. But does that mean you don't make it or like, what do you actually do? It's, yeah, it's an interesting conversation um, that I'm still processing. And I've been also been speaking to some engineering friends recently um, who told me that certain universities actually, even software engineers, do sign a sort of code of ethics. But it's not like... The Hippocratic Oath with Doctors, where if you break it, then you're struck off or anything. It's fairly optional. <laughs> but. I would, yeah, I mean, it's it's something I'd be interested to dig more. I mean, one thing that strikes me about this particular effort is the people involved are highly successful people. Yeah, you know? It's yeah. not like they, um, you know, worked at Facebook or Google or somewhere else and had some kind of... Um, ethical dilemma and breakdown and became, you know, some other career. They're all working. A lot of them are still working in tech. Mm. Like, you know, Justin Rosenstein, who created the Facebook like button, mm. he's been um, quite vocal in the media. I know we've referred to the article in The Guardian a number of times where he talked about, you know, his um, his feelings about detoxing and all from technology and all that kind mm. of stuff. Um, I mean, he's a co-founder of Asana. So these people aren't, aren't – aren't, uh, what am I trying to say? They they haven't lost out mm. by technology. Like they're talking about, oh, you know, um, like this person, a venture capitalist called Shamath uh, Palahaptia, I think that's how you say it, um, an early employee at Facebook said in November that the social network was ripping apart the social fa- fabric of how society works. Mm. Well, they're a VC, you know, like they're not, they have, it's not ripping their life apart. They're not losing. No one. Yeah. None of these people are losing out. You know. It's interesting. It's a shame that the the the. It's a shame that the problem always has to be solved by a perceived elite. Uh, yeah, and not that, not and, that either and, of us are any better. In well, some no, but well. you know, I, I'm not, I wouldn't call either of us terribly elite. We're pretty average people. Um, but I think what I'm, what I'm maybe saying is that it's kind of like this notion that, um, you know, oh, you know. 
it, it's a little bit dictatorish in in some respects, and, and you know, it's easy to kind of focus on the negatives of, for example, social media or Google. I mean, Google. What, what are they talking about? Are they talking about the evils of a search engine? Like, you know, what what um, what, what is their actual complaint? I'm not sure um, because you know we we it's know for addic- many it's people, actually the addict it's the addictiveness. Uh, that most of them are arguing over the addictiveness of constantly checking streams, mm-hmm. uh, being disconnected from the world around you. Like they actually have some fairly specific concerns. Cyber addiction. And yeah. I, I am becoming more concerned about some of these myself. And I actually, sure. to, to be a little blunt here on, on in public, I think I'm more concerned about this stuff than you, uh, personally and also in the wider world. Um, I also spent a couple of days this week with uh, some friends with who have children and mm. witnessing so they're not using facebook well they're not using facebook officially but witnessing them with sort of yeah see i would question mm. if a lot of these things are meant for children in the first place they're not well you know oh yes and no and this is where so you can have legal gets- terms yeah, but then children will use them anyway, and then they will use similar similar techniques in other mm. other things anyway. Um, mm. Like Snapchat has this sort of continuous streak feature, uh, like it keeps pushing you to keep using something. And and I suppose none of yeah. this is this sort of models of addic- addicting people to products is not new. There's been no. countless books written on this, but I suppose again, as always with technology, it's the immediacy of it, mm. the ability to, um, the ability to get hooked in so quickly. Whereas if you're a, an alcoholic, you have to go to the shops and buy a drink and you know <laughs> so it's that kind of immediate um yeah you can word, keep doing it pull for? out your phone um, you're hooked back in yeah. again you know it's so much quicker the the, the, the reinforcement is, is immediate rather yeah. than so it's there's no delayed reinforcement it's it's almost exactly, immediate reinforcement. exactly yeah. Yeah. but anyway I, yeah. I think like we've discussed this topic quite a bit and it's an ongoing topic and it's one that i'm still forming my own opinions on but yeah. basically the reason we added this link was to talk about this new collective the center for humane technology i'm actually hoping that we can i might even be able to pin someone down from them for an interview definitely in the future. so we'll, we'll that'll see be a great idea yeah, yeah it's um i went along to the launch and um we went along to the had... launch of the good technology collective that's the yes german one here yes yeah. correct yeah. and they had a um a couple of speakers they had a woman from the i think it was the labor party in germany and uh, also a woman who'd formerly worked for MI5 yeah. and was very anti-technology mm. in many ways. Uh, and that was, that was very interesting. It was, um, you know, firstly, it's great to hear women speaking about technology because we don't always see, um, that in, in Germany. Mm. It's probably better in some other places, but it was also good to, you know, hear opinions that I may not agree with, but it was, you know, valuable to hear why they had some of those thoughts, yeah. you know. All right. Let's, uh, Let's move on to a somewhat related topic. This is from Politico, uh, and this mm. is from uh, Janosch Delka. I'm not sure if that's a German name, so maybe I pronounced that wrong. <laughs> uh, to protect or collect Germany's big data divide. And, I mean, Europe-wide is more conscientious of... Um, is more conscientious on data collection and usage than many other countries, um, but Germany especially. And I don't really want to dig too much into the cultural reasons as to why Germany is like this. That's not really what we want to discuss. But this article is kind of about Mm. how Germany is recognising that its obsession with data privacy is somewhat harming it um, Mm. Mm. competitively in the world. And should they stick to how they currently operate with data and kind of try to be a a, 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 a business option for people who are, want that and Germany can kind of be the main provider of privacy, basically, mm. or do they open themselves up and become more like other countries? And I actually asked a few friends and, of course, mm-hmm. I very much got we should remain private from the Germans and yeah. <laughs> and don't care from the the others so you know i kind of got the answers i was expecting it's quite a cultural thing 
Um, when yeah, you're yeah. just a question for you, when when you're talking about like data privacy, um, are they talking about people's personal data? Are they talking about um, business data? Because I got the impression a lot of it was um, to do with industry data. It's, I mean, industry data is obviously more financially, uh, like IoT. Yeah, that's obviously more financially useful, especially to to B two B work is always always yeah. more uh, financially rewarding than consumer monetization. But I think it kind of includes a little bit of everything because often those devices are collecting data on us anyway. So, uh, and I, I think well, it's two aspects. There's kind of the industrial sabotage aspect, which comes from leaky data from industrial aspects and then there's just the personal privacy and they're part of the same conversation but there's slightly different aspects of it um and i think they're looking at the the aspect of both um Mm. and we also have gdpr starting very soon which Mm. covers some of this as well but germany in in germany in particular especially with its focus on like industry 4.0 and Mm. these sorts of aspects it's interesting because it's coming out of the current elections uh, fiasco here uh and yeah it's part of almost part of the coalition negotiations about like what's our future plan going to be we are falling yeah. we are falling behind in this what do we do about it do we make think- the fact that we are different an actual selling point or do we change and become like everybody else that's kind of the discussion being had I get the impression the um, the CDU and the SPD, the CDU is the Christian Democrats Union. Yeah, they're the, the more conservative. Yeah. SPD is the Social Democrats. They're more have, left of centre, yeah. Yeah, they have quite different opinions. I mean, um, the CDU are the people saying, well, you know, we can't do a lot of technology um, without the data, <laughs> which is yeah, true. Yeah. Um, and I, I can see a lot of points there. But I think um, actually, the part one of the parties that kind of lost out the FDP, mm. who are more like Macron's kind of party in France, mm. were the ones who are much more pro kind of business, um, and they sort of they walked out the coalition negotiations so not really going to hear much from them anyway we're getting sort of more into uh, German election politics than the actual well I wasn't actually I just wanted to mention one of the points that they're arguing which the SPD the the lefties if we call them that leftish (laughs) leftish sorry Um, they say privacy rules are a competitive advantage instead of deregulating the government should press local manufacturers to promote German products as data safe alternatives to those from the US which is kind of what I said like and other trade rivals do we turn it into a commercial advantage like an advantage or do we become like everybody else and just stop that that's kind of the the anyway yeah it's interesting We'll, we'll keep you updated listeners it's um, wonderful, though, that's for sure. It's one, a wonder. I think you said it's wonderful for a second. <laughs> no, uh, uh, one to follow. Not wonderful. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, maybe it'll be wonderful, depends on your perspective. All right then, Kate, we're going to move on into something related but slightly different again about sort of responsible use of technology. This okay. is quite an interesting article from on Pitchfork from uh, Damon, Damon Krakowski who used to be in a band called Galaxy 500, who I vaguely remember. They were sort of um, a reasonable-sized kind of indie band from the late 90s, early yeah, 2000s. Yeah, I remember them well, yeah. And it's an article talking about uh, how to be a responsible music fan in the age of streaming. Uh, and as do many artists of his sort of size, i.e. not huge, um, firstly mention is like the pitiful royalty rates that artists of that caliber get on mm. uh, Spotify in particular. Spotify is usually picked on, although Apple Music is very fast catching up and uh, you don't hear as many criticisms. Uh, I don't know if there's what the reasons for that are. But What was he getting? I think he's got some figures. Here. Yeah, you so do you, you can mention it, Kate. I, I've, I've dominated the intro. Okay. You mentioned it. Um, yeah, so they were getting uh, – this, this is a bit of a shocker mm. – um, Spotify had sent songwriting royalties of $1.05 – for the 5,960 times our single Tugboat was played that quarter, mm. split between the group's three members, each of us had made 35 cents. Not exactly a promising new source of income. No. And, I mean, Lordy. it's actually interesting because, um, as I have mentioned in the past, I was a musician in the past, uh, probably of a similar 
size as someone like Galaxy 500, actually. Um, and I mean, I didn't actually quite realize uh, my band's most famous album isn't actually available on any streaming platforms. Uh, mm. I don't think for any ethical reason, just the, I don't think the label did the right deals. <laughs> so, mm. so I don't have a lot, I have less to say than I thought I did because I actually went and did some research right. on this and discovered that, you know, the songs that I wrote aren't even available. Uh, some of them are available as part of a best of album. Um, right. But that's, yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, yeah, I don't even have stuff available. Um, but I was always, I was always sort of of the impression that, you know, you get more plays, you get less for each play, but you get more plays. Like, say, for example, the alternative for this would be playing the song on the radio. Now, no radio station, especially with someone like Galaxy 500, I would even challenge mm. someone like Michael Jackson is going to play a song 5,960 times in one quarter. That's so, you know, it's a source of income. I think the interesting thing is, and this is sort of what he starts to get into, is it's a source of income that didn't exist before, but of course, mm. the problem is it's supplanting the traditional forms. If it was just supplemental, it would be okay, but it's supplanting it. It actually makes an interesting comment. It says, um, according to data trackers at Buzz Angle Music, more than 99% of audio streaming is of the top 10% yeah. most streamed ta- tracks, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, which means less than 1% of all streams account yeah. for all of the music. Yeah. I find that quite shocking, actually, because I always assumed that people had very large, like like myself and most people I know, have quite large, you know, collections in their music files and, you know, play them whether it's a rand- randomly or shuffling or some something or other. Or, or with, There's a delineation between your work music and your party music or what have you. Um, yeah, I was well, very you, you've actually You've actually walked right into the trap there, Kate. This is, this is, and the reason uh-huh. is why is because now this is algorithm-determined music. Um and oh. you're getting played stuff that you want to be played. But I bet you, I bet you if you could dig into the numbers, you would find you listen to the same stuff over and over again quite a lot. Um, and how much do you surface new music? Uh, or, or, or new, probably not. Not necessarily not. new music, but new music to you, you know. And this yeah, is kind of what point. he's saying is that it's another one of these filter bubble effects that everyone ah, kind of gets interesting. pushed into these buckets. So it's, yeah. it's actually unlikely. This has always been one of... Uh, Radiohead's um, dislikes of streaming platforms as well is that it doesn't actually level the playing field at all. Mm, mm. And he also talks about how there are some creators who almost tailor their music to suit streaming platforms, which, I mean, on one side you could say this is an oldie complaining about what the kids are doing and he doesn't understand it, but in some respects it's also, yeah, it's also different. Um, yeah. yeah, I know we talked about that before, like the idea that the... Um, the album was changing because it was mm, never mm. Or, or less often played in its entirety. Mm, it was played mm. in, you know, bits and pieces. Mm. And then, like, the article's really interesting. It talks about it the uh, issue of scale with music. Yeah. Like, Text Dub's all about scale. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've got a whole diatribe at the moment about how VC funding is killing so many companies because it is constantly pushing for scale. Um, mm, anyway, that's a that's whole other true. conversation. But uh, yeah, he talks interestingly here about, like, for example, bands that were always quintessentially live bands. He talks specifically mm-hmm. about the Grateful Dead, who were mm. very much into having intimate shows for their fans. And then, of course, as they had to get bigger, the shows get bigger. But then the kind of the, the feeling, the feeling goes. Um, yeah. And but why did they have big, big stadium concerts? Like, did they? Because the demand there would have was been there. Tr- of course, the demand was there. There would have been a choice there to do yeah. that, right? Yeah, the demand is there. Um, And so then he starts to try to figure out how you can take these similar principles and apply them to the streaming of music. Um, I guess, like, trying to get out of your filter bubble, uh, if possible, and listening to newer music, getting recommendations from friends instead of the algorithm, you know, Mm. um, making it more personal. Than, than it was, uh, than it is, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess there's something in that too. We should all be asking our friends for some new As music used recommendations. To, yeah. Yeah. Like, like we used to with mixtapes and stuff, you know? Mm. Remember when we used to make mixtapes? Mm. And there's some, there's some bizarre things here. Like, uh, so Spotify, kind of the popularity of Spotify was this shareable playlist. 
And there's some interesting aspects here. It says, information is so lacking for the individual tracks on playlists. Some of the most listened to are by musicians who don't even exist. <laughs> Which, I, I don't know, it's quite strange. It's a separate article I'll have to read. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very interesting article, actually. Um, and... It covers a lot of different facets of content and culture and how it relates to music and mm-hmm. uh, streaming of music. Yeah. Anyway, I recommend you have a read of it, especially if you're a fan. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely worth a read. It's um, an interesting issue. And I'd be interested to hear some of the reader, sorry, the listeners' thoughts on it as well, and- whether they... And that is a good place to mention what we said at the beginning of the show, which is you can find previous episodes and show notes at com slash podcast. You can support the show at slash support. And now the first of several platforms, you can find us on Facebook and you can interact with us and express your opinions. And Kate, I think you've got something planned for this week. I have. We're going to have a poll which I will set up this afternoon, asking people about how you find new music. You know, is it recommended by friends? Is it something you hear in a, a movie uh, or a television show? Is it a, through going to a gig? Uh, maybe some other things. So um, I'll be curious to see how people um, do find new music in this streaming age where we're fighting against all these algorithms. Hmm. Okay, just a final little article to wrap up our section on, you know, going over things in the news that we think are interesting. This one's from Harvard Business Review, and it's called Eight Questions to Ask Someone Other Than What Do You Do? And it's by David Berkus. And, you know, I I think we're all guilty of that one. What do you do? Or what kind of, like, I always try and um, preface it with a little bit, given I work in an expat um, city where people a lot of people haven't found a job yet it might be oh what kind of work do you do or are you working or studying or just resting or looking for work you know just resting <laughs> I, I use resting it's a polite way of fun employed know, <laughs> uh yeah doing doing fuck all basically <laughs> I, I would also a- like to add to this list of banned questions which you especially get here is where are you from where are you from i yeah. hate that one because i don't know how to answer it for one and like, what does it matter? Uh, <laughs> Probably I get more often than where are you from? Where are you from in England? <laughs> where are you from in England, um, Kate? If, if they think this is an English accent, they're a little bit... Um, it's, it's a little bit odd because I know a lot of Germans have been to Australia, so they should know better. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, they, they should know better, yeah. I would like to think people know what an Australian accent sounds like. Yours isn't the you strongest know. and I am to blame, but anyway. <laughs> there are quite a, you know, quite a, a, a diverse um, selection of different accents across Australia. But anyway, let's go back to these questions. So these are some questions that you could use to kind of engage people. Maybe you're at a networking yep. event or you're at a social kind of gathering. You don't know people. Um, I'm not sure I'd use all of these because they, some of them are a bit deep for me. Um, <laughs> in a in a five-minute chat while someone's going to you're, you're, you're going to escape to the loo or whatever you, you do, go and get another drink. But I'm going to read them out and see what people think. What excites you right now? It gives others the ability to give with a work-related answer or talk about their kids mm. or their new boat or basically anything their that excites boat. them. It's very Harvard, Harvard yeah. Business Review. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, my new boat, my new jet, and, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I use a variant of that one myself. I often say what interests you or what brings you here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what are you looking forward to? Okay. It's yeah. a nice one. Broad, but yeah. Um, <laughs> what's the best thing that happened to you this year? Okay, yeah. Where did you grow up? Uh, I think this is... It's a bit too similar to the where are you from, although it's not quite the same, yeah. This one I, I, I do ask, what do you do for fun? Yep. Or I usually say, what, Possibly, what, potentially what, what are you into? Dangerous responses, you know? but yeah. <laughs> well, you know. I, I, a lot of people, if you're at a party, they'll say, oh, I like a drink. <laughs> um, I like this one. It's a, it's a funny one. Who's, who is your favourite superhero? Yeah. <laughs> That's a hard one, you know. Um, and not one I must admit I've really thought about. So it's a it's one that would take me – that could be quite a long conversation while I decided on a superhero, couldn't it? 
could be quite painful for the other person. <laughs> Who is your favourite superhero, Kate? I don't know. Ah. <laughs> I, I, I actually don't know that much about superheroes, I'm afraid. Maybe I, someone from... I think from X- mainstream X-Men? ones, uh, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Because he's flawed. Mm. Um, is there a charitable cause you support? Mm. Interesting. Could get quite political there, couldn't it? <laughs> Could be very interesting. And then finally, what's the most important thing I should know about you? Which, uh, I don't know, also... Yeah, that's, I don't like that at potential all. Potential for like a risk job interview. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a job interview or something. Yeah. It's like that, that horrible question you get asked, what what's your, your biggest weakness? Yeah, what's your biggest weakness? I've got to go up, next, like, next networking event, I've got to walk up to someone and say that. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I used to say gin and tonics, gin chocolate, and tonic. or something. Yeah, that's a bit like something lame. like that. Come on, I don't, I don't know. What What are you meant to say? Oh, the you know, sweet I'm... sound of children crying. <laughs> no, that's a, that's not a weakness. It's my that's a, that that's a cards my, against my, humanity. <laughs> I think that would be my intolerance to children. Anyway, crying. Kate, before we get to dangerous territory here, let's wrap this mm, bit up and let's move yeah. on to what we've been up to and what we're up to. So yeah. I know you've been a little busy, but um, tell us about some. I can see a few here on your list. Uh, what's some of the? Uh, I think you've got one or two articles you've written recently here. What are you working on, and where are you going in the next few months? Um, let's see. I have. A, I'm working on an article with um, that I wrote after an interview with Schneider Electric about their um, use of AI in predictions and. Um, uh, all kinds of things as it relates to energy management. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really interesting area and a really nice use case of um, both IoT and AI. Um, I'm also working on a couple of articles to do with connected cars mm-hmm. that have been sitting there for a little a little bit too long. And I interviewed a couple of really interesting uh, blockchain companies. Mm-hmm. One was one that was um, working on... Uh, how do I explain it? It's always the problem with this stuff. To explain it in a soundbite is sometimes quite hard if you're not not the company. Uh, basically, they had sort of two facets. One was um, to do with having a source code that could be easily utilised by non-technical people. So I guess maybe the, the, the developer version of what, you know, in IoT you would refer to as plug and play. Um, their other component was looking at using... Um, underutilized um, energy in um, virtual in machines to do um, trading of, of transactions and things like that um, and eventually looking to move that onto IOT devices as well that's a very interesting area and I was I was actually skeptical because I didn't think virtual machines were terribly successful but um, the the founder was actually able to give me quite a few examples to to kind of research and where it had been going very well so my, my ignorance perhaps there. And the other one was a company called Filament, um, a company that interestingly started out doing uh, uh, so hardware for the, um, I guess, the, what would you call it? The maker community is probably the term. They did some kickstarted stuff there. Then they moved on to sort of platform stuff and uh, attracted a lot of interest from the industrial space. And they found people were using their stuff in um, industrial applications, and they were a little bit, you know, because that's not what it's meant for. That's a bit scary. And so they they moved into that space. And more recently, they're working. Um, they've created a chip, the Brooklet chip, that is being utilised to um, basically provide a number of things. But the one I, that sort of caught my interest, if you like, given it's you know. It's still 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 getting into in place. Was about um, using it for um, data monetization. So there could be some very interesting applications there. Um, and I, you know, look forward to writing that one up. Hopefully today or tomorrow. Okay. Uh, and from me, over the past few weeks, uh, what have I written? I've got uh, a piece on what is a decentralized exchange for cryptocurrencies. Um, I covered very briefly, although I'm going to be doing an interview soon on Red Hat's acquisition of CoreOS. Uh, and related to that, I did a roundup of Kubernetes platforms. Um, yeah. And, uh, what else? There's been a few podcast episodes, which you probably know already because you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> also creating cross platform voice applications with Jovo. 
I can't even remember when we last did an episode. So <laughs> I don't know how many of those I've, I've mentioned already. But there's a few. Uh, I'm currently working on an article uh, for a guide to linters. Uh, <laughs> something mm-hmm. for a presentation. And that, and that said, I've actually got quite a few presentations coming up over the next few weeks. You can see we've been busy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to be talking at Write the Docs in Amsterdam, but I'm not actually going okay. to be there. I'm going to be doing it over VoIP. <laughs> ah. And that's on uh, the 19th of February. I am then speaking at World Information Architecture Day here in Berlin on the 24th, which is actually about uh, information architecture and ethics. Um, I'm still figuring out quite what I'm going to say there, which feeds into some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. Then Kate and I, at the end of February, will be at Mobile World Congress, lining up a lot of interviews. In Barcelona. In Barcelona. And then in a few months' time, I'm actually going to be in the US a few times, but we'll... uh, I'll, I'll get back to you with more details. I'll also be concerns. here in Berlin at Bosch Connected World, um, which is a big you should kind add of... add that to the website, Kate. I, I will, I will. <laughs> I'll do that today. An IoT conference, um, 20th to the 23rd of... Or 22nd, sorry, of um, February. So in a few weeks. Yep. All right, then. So thanks very much for listening, everybody. That was our little roundup of links that have interested us. Uh, coming up on the podcast next after this show is an interview with Aiva, uh, who made an AI that composes music. And it was a fascinating interview, mm-hmm. and I hope you'll Very enjoy that when it's published. Uh, one more time, you can find previous shows at gregariousmammal.com slash podcast. You can support us at gregariousmammal.com slash support. You can find us on Facebook. And now, finally, our mailing list is actually live uh, which you can also find at slash support. <laughs> I sent the first issue out last week and there's another Fantastic. one coming soon. Uh, how can the good people find and talk to you, Kate? They can find me at um, probably Twitter is the most most easy and less painful for people. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Kate underscore Lawrence and that's Kate with a C and Lawrence with a W. And I believe you also have a website. I do, I do. KateLawrence.com. Same spelling, <laughs> no underscore. Yep, C uh, yeah. and it. <laughs> we just need to record you saying that once and just keep playing it back. We totally do. That so would be much. much. Maybe, maybe make it into a jingle or something. <laughs> Kate with a C, Lawrence with a W, etc. And you can find me at Chris Chinch on Twitter or ChrisChinchilla.com. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's how. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're not very good at that kind of. We're a bit more, to, we feel like have we're to quite, a fake American accent. I'm not sure. Yeah, we're quite laconic because of you know my Australian background. I don't really do the. Yeah, and if you want to find out more, you can contact us at twitter.com or whatever. Yeah, yeah well, don't contact really us at twitter.com. That's for sure. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that might be not right. Actually, any unrelated yeah. news? Do you know that Twitter has reported its first profitable quarter ever? <laughs> I did see that. Which I didn't add I, I, to I, I did have a snigger. Yeah. That's just because they started putting ads on, that's all. No, it's, it's Donald Trump. Isn't it? I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, we are now danger of having a second show here. So, <laughs> so Alrighty. let's wrap things up. And, yep, you will hear from us next time. Thanks for listening. Okay, over, over and out. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.